And I think women of color are used to being told not to shine brightly. And so one bit of advice that I would always give people is don't let other people dull your shine. Hey, you're listening to How Did You Get There podcast, a show that explores the career journeys of women of colour, hosted by me, Rio. I'm super excited about this first episode. I speak to producer, director and broadcaster Jasmine Dottiwala. Now, if you haven't heard about Jasmine, she's been in the media industry for over 25 years. Her career highlights include being an MTV presenter, the head of MTV Base, and now she's currently working for Netflix. I really hope you enjoy hearing her career journey and she also gives some brilliant career advice. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, let's start from the beginning then, Jasmine. Did you always aspire to be in the media industry? Do you know what? I don't know what it's like for women of colour nowadays, but when I was coming up in the 90s after uni, I don't think women like me aspired as much to work in media just because it wasn't something that our parents and our teachers told us was a possibility so for example it's a really funny story but you know my old high school teacher my drama teacher Mr Hammond we always laugh about this because when I said to him in drama I'd like to work in media or theatre he went no he went people like you from backgrounds like this don't end up in those jobs he won't try and think of something else and he genuinely didn't mean it from a bad place I think it's just what we got told when we were brought up in places like I was so I grew up between Southall and Harlesden because my parents were divorced and that's where both of them lived and so we were always told that people like us worked in I don't know, maybe they looked at me and went, well, you're Asian, so maybe you should study to be a doctor or a banker or a solicitor or a dentist. And honestly, my brain is just not that smart. Like I cannot, it doesn't work mathematically. I'm on the other side of my brain. I'm very creative. I didn't think I was going to work in production. I didn't think I was going to work in media. Actually, Rio, I remember the moment that I knew that I wouldn't have a normal job is in the summer holidays and the Easter holidays, my mum and dad used to say to me, you know, go out there, see if you can get a part-time job. And, you know, I grew up in an era where part-time jobs meant paper rounds or or milk rounds or whatever. And so I remember I had a summer job at Next one year. Then I had a Christmas job at Liberties working in Santa's Grotto area. And then I had a job at a dry cleaners. I was in the warehouse part where you actually dealt with dirty clothes putting them on hangers and there was lots of like really big overweight men's suits that were smelly and you know the people that had worked in this dry cleaning factory had worked there for years and I just remember thinking wow this is their job like I don't want this to be my job and it was a real moment of reckoning for me to go you better get serious otherwise this could be your life (laughs) so you know at school I was writing letters for work experience but I was lucky that I had teachers that always guided me. So one of my um, GCSE teachers said, oh, you love dance and drama and theatre. Maybe you could do an A-level in that. And I thought, oh, I never knew you could do A-levels in that. So I then did that at Hammersmith and West London College in communications, dance and theatre. And then similarly, a great um, teacher, one of my tutors at Hammersmith and West London College called Susanna, said, oh, you love this stuff. Why don't you do a degree in it? So I may have never even aspired to do a degree, but these teachers would always go, oh, you should think about doing a degree in those subjects. So then I did the degree at Roehampton University, same subjects, media, communications and theatre. 
And honestly, I would have been happy to work anywhere in media after that. I mean, I was writing out letters, unlike your day, Rio, when you guys literally <laughs> have to just send an email for free. All you have to do is make sure your spelling and grammar and everything research-wise is on point. My generation, we had to type out letters on a computer that usually we didn't own. So we'd go to the library or my mum had a typewriter and we would have to print out letters put them in envelopes, find addresses and put stamps on them like it was expensive. That's why when I now get um, cover letters and CVs and things are wrong, I just think, guys, like seriously, if you had to be in my generation, this wouldn't have been a thing. So I wrote off loads of letters and my mum used to take me every year, alternate years, to my grandparents in different countries. So one set of grandparents are in India and Mauritius and one set of grandparents are in Kenya. And so this was a year where we'd gone to Kenya and my dad was at home and I remember him calling excitedly. This was before the days of mobile phones. And he excitedly called my granddad and said, quickly, get Jasmine on the phone. He said, I've had a call from a company called Planet 24. They're a TV company. And they said that, that Jasmine can do work experience. But Jasmine isn't back in time from the holiday. And so my, I was like, well, I want to do it. But I can't come back all the way from Kenya. And he was like, let me call them and ask them if they'll have you when you come back. Anyway, long story short. Planet 24 made this incredible show called The Big Breakfast on Channel 4. It was when Chris Evans and Gabby Roslin hosted it. It was the highest echelons of TV creators. And the same company at Planet 24 made a show called The Word, which went out on a Friday night. And The Word on Channel 4, for those of you who are too young to remember, it was live. It was groundbreaking. I mean, it was a youth culture show that was full of sex, drugs and rock and roll. That's the only way I can describe it. <laughs> We had live performances from new musicians who at the time were names like Mary J. Blige, Cypress Hill, Jodeci, uh, Nirvana, Oasis. There were sort of pop culture stories. There were lots of pranks. When I came back from holiday, I did work experience. And, you know, I come from a very diligent mother, right? My mm. father was a bit wayward in terms of he was into politics, but he was always a troublemaker. So he would be like fighting for justice for black and Asian communities. His best friend was Paul Botang, who is, you know, one of the first black MPs and, and, you know, lords in this country. So my godfather is Paul Botang. So I was on my dad's side, always seeing them guys making trouble, fighting for justice and social equality. But on my mum's side, a very quiet, humble, coming from a very, not a poor background, but they were pretty poor. But my mum would be very diligent and religious, right? Mm. So my mum's religious side, bringing me up as the main parent, would always be, don't cause trouble, get your head down, just work hard, don't cause, you know, like, like. So I've got these two very different personalities bringing me up as a child. And so I'm at work experience at my desk. I'm just making sure that they can't do without me because I'm thinking, I want you to hire me as a runner. And so... I was good. They offered me a runner's position. The runner's position was on different shifts, but the runner's shifts back then, we were all on a 7 a.m., 10 a.m., 12 noon, um, 7 p.m., or you'd be working through the night from 10 till the next morning. And each different shift was either working with the script team, with the producers, or in the house on the studio set for the big breakfast. And so I had this incredible baptism of fire in television Everyone who was like a researcher or a runner at my time in that in that job is now running television all over the industry mm -hmm. with their own TV companies, film companies. You know, Zoe Ball, for example, was a researcher when I was a runner. One of the funniest lessons I learned was I've been a runner 
on these shifts for about a year, there was a floor assistant position coming up because the floor and man- floor assistant was going up to floor manager. I just interviewed for the floor assistant position and I was there. And Chris Evans said to us, okay, so let me set the story up for you. We had celebrities in the big breakfast every day. And on this particular day, Spike Lee and Denzel Washington were in there. Spike Lee and Denzel Washington is like the queen coming to my workplace and I'm going to be in touching distance of them, right? I am excited. I am hyper. I'm telling all my friends, oh my God, guess who's air I'm going to be breathing tomorrow, right? <laughs> so I get in and I am distracted. I'm distracted by the celebs. Well, part of my job as a floor assistant, and I was just in that position, part of my job was to make sure the script was in the right place or the props were set up for the next item. We went live after the break and Chris Evans, the camera came back to Chris Evans's face and Chris Evans said, well, viewers, he said, right now, we're supposed to be doing something with Spike Lee and Denzel Washington. Woo! And everyone cheers. And then he says, but he said, the thing that we were going to do required me to have these props on my desk. He said, but the floor assistant has been so enamoured with our celebrities today that she's forgotten to put them up. The camera swings to my face and just catches me with my mouth open, looking stunned like a rabbit in in headlights. I mean, it was terrible, terrible. And Chris was like, Jazz, why aren't the props up? And I sort of stuttered and quickly put them where they were supposed to be. Humiliation on national television. Everyone's having a bit of a giggle about it. I mean, I took it in good, good faith, but honestly, I was mortified. And then after the show, Chris went to me, don't worry about it. He said, but hopefully that's a lesson. Never be distracted or impressed Mm -hmm. openly by celebrities. Like he said, everyone who comes to this house comes to our set. He said, this is our set. We are in control. He said, the minute one of the crew members looks like they're all fawny over a celeb, he said, it puts the celeb in positions of power instead of us. And it was the biggest lesson of all. Because I was never, ever, ever openly impressed by a celeb again. It, it, it built and placed inside me a seed of professionalism. So it's something I still live by a little bit. And I know that we live in a generation now where people say, don't criticize your staff in public or do it mm. privately. And sometimes that works, but sometimes you have to do it in a team scenario. Like mm. I still feel like showing those examples to people openly, but done from a place of, good feedback and positive words, I think it can be much more powerful. Like if he'd have never said anything to me, if he'd have let that item go to air and then spoke to me afterwards and said, actually, I had to pick up my own props, you should have learned. Mm. In my head, I might have gone, you know what? I messed up, but someone covered for me and maybe the lesson wouldn't have settled. Amazing stories, Jasmine. And just going back to that, TV in those days, how diverse was it? Oh God, not diverse at all, you know. And it's awkward for me because I'm a brown woman people just assume that I'm Indian but Mm. I'm Parsi and I'm actually Parsi Zoroastrian which Mm. is a small Persian um, religion that's kind of dying it's a very small community but the awkward thing about that is that people go oh she must be Indian so we'll call her Indian and things like goodness gracious me is like kind of what you're about and so when I first started on television I got my first presenting job on the word I'd get interviewed by all the big paparazzi. You know, the Sun would come and interview me. I'd be doing interviews for The Guardian and front cover stories for their supplements feature mm-hmm. page. And every question would be something like, are you going to have an arranged marriage? Are you allowed to cut your hair? Are you allowed to eat beef? And I would just sit there and laugh and go, guys, I'm not South Indian Asian. Like, yeah. just because I'm brown doesn't mean I'm Indian. I didn't think back then we took it 
as seriously. Serious. It was frustrating, but it was like, I'm so lucky to even be here being interviewed by you guys. It didn't make me angry. You know, it was an era where people didn't know any better. And now you've got Google, you can research anything, and yeah. therefore people shouldn't have to make those errors. So you were more like more than likely to be the only person of colour on the, those set. When I first started being a runner on The Big Breakfast and The Word, I was the only person of colour. In fact, my only other person of colour was my stylist. The stylist for The Big Breakfast and The Word was a guy, a, black, a young black man called Al. But I think we brown and black people were seen as being exotic additions to the crew when we, when I was on the word and I got the presenter job on the word I, that was I was tricked into that with another diversity thing I can tell you about in a minute yeah but when I got that job on the word they would say all the producers who were mostly white male and middle class would say oh Jazz can do Jodeci and Mary J Blige no no one cares about them and I'd come from Harlesden and Southall going Jodeci and Mary J Blige like honestly it was like this era's version of, I don't know, who would it be? Beyonce and Jay-Z and Drake or something. And because they were so interested in the Indian rock band, it wasn't their world. So I had literally landed the best job in telly. And they'd be like, hip-hop and R&B is just a fad. It's a passing fad like lots of other genres. And, mm. and then I said I'd come back to how I got that job, right? Yes. So I'm at The Big Breakfast. I'm at The Word. I'm a runner on both shows. And then one of the researchers in the same company a guy called Andrew Newman who ended up graduating through all the highest ranks of TV channel four he has his own company now Andrew was a researcher and Andrew said we're doing the new auditions for the word presenter for the next series and you should go for it he said you're really funny and stuff and I was like nah I said that's not me I said I'm happy working in production I genuinely love working mm. in production with a creative team and then he was like okay fine so that's the last I thought of it and that was it then the next thing was, after one of the big breakfast shows in the morning, I got a memo on my email from one of the bosses saying, we're doing final auditions for the word tomorrow at Channel 4 HQ. He said, we're supposed to have six finalists, but one of them's just dropped out. He said, Andrew mentioned that you did drama and dance and stuff at um, uni. He said, would you mind standing in? He said, we need them to be in pairs because we're going to be doing like exercises and interviews and stuff. And that was it. I didn't hmm. genuinely didn't even flinch and suspect anything. But then, Rio, I turn up at Channel 4 HQ the next morning thinking it's cool. I mean, literally, this is how cool I was. Everyone else is done up, all the other five um, finalists. And I've turned up in my tracksuit and trainers because that's all I wore in those days. Yeah. And I've been given a script. But I go into the room and the other five finalists are all brown women of some persuasion. Right. And I clocked it immediately. I said, what is going on here? Right. And it was clear. Channel 4 had a diversity box to tick. And now someone up there had gone, oh, we need a brown woman. Did it all. Didn't think twice about it. And then three weeks later at work, after the big breakfast, I get another email and the memo that says, Jazz, when you finish um, the breakfast today, can you pop up and see Charlie and Wahid? Charlie and Wahid and Bob Geldof ran the company. They don't wow. ask to see people like me unless they're firing you. And I was convinced I was being fired because so I used to do the flowers for Paula Yates. And Paula Yates was mega famous. The wife of Bob Geldof, Bob Geldof from Live Aid. So every time Paula's new flowers would come in the next day, the old flowers, they're supposed to chuck them in the bin. And I used to bring them home with me because I was yeah. like, why would I chuck them in the bin? I can take them home to my mum. Exactly. So I thought I'm being fired for stealing flowers, right? <laughs> I get up to Charlie Wahid and Bob's office. All three of them are in there. 
So Wahid stands up, and this is Lord Wahid Ali. Charlie Parsons, the crazy genius of all TV, created Survivor and all that stuff. And Bob Geldof. Like, they are three hardcore personalities. And I am inside trembling, thinking, okay, how bad can this be, right? I'm going to get fired for stealing flowers. So I go in. He says, I need you to go downstairs to your desk on the, on the next floor. And I need you to clear your desk. And I thought, oh, my heart sank. I thought I'm being fired. And he went, I need you to clear your desk. He said, I need you to leave the building. And I'm thinking, oh, God. And we need you to get yourself a solicitor. And I'm thinking, you're going to take me to court for stealing Paula Yates' flowers. <laughs> I'm terrified. And he said, because you are now the new presenter of the word for the biggest show on national TV wow. in this country. And it was terrifying. I don't want to be a presenter. I didn't tell you I wanted to be a presenter. You guys yeah. doing that audition. I like working in production. And, and it was awkward, Rio, because, you know, there was other women that I worked with back then. There was a lovely woman called Mo, who was the receptionist. And she and I were best mates. And she wanted that job. She'd gone mm -hmm. for that job. And now suddenly it looked like I'd stabbed people in the back and, like, taken the job that was their dream job. And I'd suddenly been thrown into this whirlpool of, oh, you're not now going to be working in production. You're going to be working as this presenter who flies around the world, does these incredible interviews, and it was just bizarre. I was going to say, what, did they ever say what made you stand out? Yes. So, of course, I asked them. I was like, but why? I mean, it was quite clear. I've still got framed um, newspaper stories about when I started that in the next room. And one of them is a front page of the Guardian culture supplement. And there's a photo of my face that's been given the Andy Warhol cartoon treatment. And the headline says, by tonight, this woman will be a celebrity. And, and basically, my inside, there's an interview with my boss at the time that said, we thought it would be a great story for PR to say she went from a runner dog's body to oh. a TV presenter. I still think, yes, it's manipulation. Yes, it's PR. But you know what? Sometimes... When you're a person of colour, you have to use the things that are yeah. out there for you. You know, I always say to the young people that I train, the Oxford and Cambridge candidates have mummy and daddy's contacts. They have their own network and movement that, you know, galvanise them and bring them together to get jobs just like that, even if they're not, you know, even if they're not, like, skilled up for those jobs. Mm. So I say if there are diversity quotas, if there are diversity opportunities for inclusion and equity, take them. Because we don't have much at our fingertips. And none of us want to feel like we're there just for diversity. But remember, you can get your foot in the door because of a diversity initiative or a scheme. But you won't stay in. If you're no good, they won't keep you. If you're no good, you won't progress and pipeline to the next level. We've got to use what is at our disposal to get, get through and get to yeah. the next level. So, Jasmine, obviously you were presenting some of the biggest shows. But then you went on to become the head of MTV Base, and I'm quite interested in that. How did that happen? So when I finished at The Word, so The Word was outrageous. Like, Rio, to give you a sense of every time the show went out on a Friday night, by the Saturday morning, all the tabloids covered whatever stories we were doing because we would do some outrageous stuff, right? Eventually, it caught up with us because the outrageous stuff got so many complaints for, for Ofcom that we were banned. So at that stage, I 
was on a one-year retainer with Planet 24. So if you're a big presenter, most companies, when you leave, they'll put you on a retainer, which means they keep paying you to do nothing with the competition. And then if they can find a new TV vehicle for development for you, they will. But if not, then, you know, after that year's retainer, basically they let you go. So I had a year of doing nothing. I was going to the gym. I was hanging out with my mates. And so I was telling people, you know, I'm going to be free in a year. Do you want to, like, do you know any people or whatever? And it's funny, I was in the nightclub of Subterranea in Ladbroke Grove. And I was in the toilets and I bumped into a girl called Tamsin Summers. And Tamsin was working at MTV. And I said to her, oh, I'm going to be free from Channel 4 soon. I said, like, is there anything going at MTV? And she was like, oh, I'll let you know. And that was it. And two or three months later... I got a call from a woman and a guy who then ended up being my line managers for the next decade and something. And they basically said, we are looking for new MTV news presenters. This was before MTV in the UK was a separate channel. So it was just all one big thing called MTV Europe. And so I was a presenter for MTV News, but it was wild. Me, people like me, Davina McCall, Edith Bowman, but that's how I got my job at MTV. I was an MTV News reporter. But then I quickly realized that actually, yeah, it's fun being a reporter. People recognize you and you get free stuff. But I quickly clocked that there were always newer, younger, prettier versions out there wanting your job. And how could I stay at MTV and not just present? So mm. I started producing my own scripts and lines, you know. But there was a introduction I had to do to a Mary J. Blige live. And the producer had written it in language that I just wouldn't use. And it sounded mm. weird. So she was very posh and chipped. And she said, hey, if Mary J. Blige is something that floats your boat with the queen of hip-hop soul, then maybe this next moment's for you or something. And I was just like, oh, Anne, I wouldn't really say that. Can I change it? And she said, well, why wouldn't you say it? And I said, that's just not how I talk and stuff. And so it was interesting. She said to me, all right, I'll write the script. And she said, you can rewrite it in your own words. So that's how I then ended up becoming a producer and a presenter. Then I ended up working through the um, company to be producer, presenter and director because then I doubt I wouldn't have done that shot like that. And yeah, so that's how I ended up producing, presenting and directing myself and my own um, stuff at MTV. I ended up going to the top of um, the News International team. So I was senior producer and then heading up that team. And that was exciting because I was heading up teams across Europe, the Middle East and Africa. When Jay-Z or Beyonce or Destiny's Child came out as new artists, I was the one that was already well known on screen and they were new acts. So mm. I was taking them around the world and we were doing diaries in South Africa or Bangkok or whatever. And they would be like, oh, Jazz, thank you so much. And that's why it's so weird now. It hasn't happened for years because Beyonce hasn't done here anything here like that for years. But I remember she came over to do a gig at Shepherd Bush Empire, like a big private thing a few years ago maybe eight or seven years ago now and we mm. were in the backstage vip bar afterwards and the bar, bar was packed everyone was there from the industry beyonce and jay-z started walking through and i just couldn't get anywhere near them i just stood there with my partner so jay and beyonce start walking around the bar blah 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 and everyone's stopping them and then Beyonce clocks me and she says to Jay, oh, there's Jazz, like this. And so they come over to me and I am like, everyone's looking at me. And he's like, hey, how are you doing? And then Jay's like, how are you doing? And I'm like, yeah, this is blah, blah, blah. And, and it was the moment, you know, when you're just like, wow. Beyonce I mean, and Jay-Z recognised you. 
Hold on. <laughs> when you think that they must have spoken to a million different presenters in their time, and it was just wild. And remember, you're not just filming them. You're sitting down with them every evening for an hour. They're going to remember you. But yeah. it was just, you know, moments like that that were just wild. So I worked my way up through MTV doing things like that, making myself completely, similarly to The Big Breakfast, you make yourself like complete. they can't work without you. So yeah. I made sure that everywhere that I worked, I had to set up a moment for me that was, okay, you've got six other people in this team, but you can't do it without me because what I bring, I can shoot, I can edit, I can do the voiceovers for your piece, I can do the research, I can um, edit live and Bluetooth the whole thing back from afar because redundancies happen every year at every company. Everywhere I've ever worked, there's been redundancies and I learned that from day dot and that was another lesson. But I just learned very early that I needed to make sure that they couldn't work without me. I made sure yeah. I was good at everything and I added so much value. You know, one of my things when I talk to young people about tips for success, be invaluable. Like if people cannot do the work without you, you're never going to get be made redundant. You know, always have a competitive spirit. Competition is, is part of my spirit and in my heart and being fearless and challenging things and you know, having the heart of a hustler. I am a hustler. Every time I look at something, I go, how can I make that work? And people see hustling as a negative thing, but it's not a mm. negative thing. You're basically going, how can I do this in a different way that would be even better? You know, and, and there's lots of things like that I've learned. And I think the nice thing about your generation is you've taught me things that I was kind of maybe afraid to say in the past or, you know, it was suppressed in women of color. I don't know if it's a colour thing. I'm assuming it is. I don't know. I have black friends. I have white friends. I tend not to have many Asian friends only because when I was a kid in Southall, their parents wouldn't let them play with me. They would say, she's not a real Indian, so she can't play with you. And her mum and dad, had bought, you know, the West Indian community in Harlesden and Southall ended up kind of adopting me because my own mum would be at work all day. After work, I'd have to go to the babysitter. And then one of my best friend's mum's a Caribbean lady who would basically Rose her name was she would say oh no let Jasmine come here after school and as long as I said good evening good night good morning yeah. and manners. Else, <laughs> manners as long as the manners were there it was all good and and that's how probably I fell in love with West Indian culture yeah I mean I'm just so lucky I've had a seat at the table of hmm. West Indian and Caribbean culture growing up and I just think West Indian culture, specifically Jamaicans, have added so much value to international culture. I know that will colour my vision, mm. but at the same time, I look at it and remember, I feel like this neutral person and white people speak to me as if I'm not of colour sometimes. Black people speak to me as if I'm not white, right? So I hear what everybody says about each other. And I hear how all cultures impact each other. When I was younger, I grew up in a lot of white groups and organisations. Like I went to a weekend ballet school or when I went to university. And the vibe would always be, don't be so loud or you're so extra or calm mm. down a bit or you don't have to have an opinion on everything. And I think that the message my whole life was, you're too loud and you're too dazzling and you need to hold yourself down a bit and yeah. humble yourself. And, you know, even men would tell you that. Boyfriends would tell you that too. And I think women of colour are used to being told not to shine brightly. 
And so one bit of advice that I would always give people is don't let other people dull your shine. If you are sparkly and you want to own it and do your own PR, do it. Because who else is going to do your PR for you? Other people have people who champion them and mentor them. But what if you're a woman of color trying to get through in the media industries and there is no mentor or person pushing you or PRing you and you can't afford to pay a PR company or a manager? You have to shine as brightly as you can. So, you know, I always say, have the heart of a hustler, be fearless. Don't let other people dull your shine. Ultimately, your priority in any job role is to have impact and value. So we've talked about impact and value. I always also say to people, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Well, if you already have a group of friends where you are the smartest one out of them, how are you going to keep learning? Like surround yourself at work with like-minded people who are also ambitious and competing and doing things because that way you'll do things together as a group and you'll learn from each other like I put together a group I mean it's a such a mad story right now and I always say this long story short but it won't be a short story (laughs) so get ready when I was part of MTV News International I traveled the world I spoke to every genre of music Spice Girls pop stars rock stars hip-hop and R&B I loved that job but then when they had mass redundancies for the seventh year going I was then moved into the head of MTV base role. On this occasion, Rio, I didn't have an option. So it was basically you're heading up MTV base or you're leaving. Right. So I didn't have an option. I've gone over to MTV base. They are not part of the same part of MTV Viacom as I was used to. I was part of an international team. Mm. Now I'm part of just the UK team. And the UK at MTV had the smallest budget because... In Spain and France and Germany, MTV is a big terrestrial channel. In the UK, it's something you have to subscribe for, so the budget's much smaller. And if MTV UK was small, then all its little channels, MTV Bass, MTV Dance, MTV Rocks, they were even smaller. And whenever I'd have the conversations with the MTV Bass team at the time, they're all my friends, I would say to them, hey, how come you're not doing anything with, and it would all be British black acts that they weren't really representing as much as I thought they could. And they would always come back to me and say, Jazz, nobody likes that stuff. They want the American acts. They're all into the American R&B and hip hop. And I was like, yeah, but when I go to Subterranean and, and Hanover Grand, people are excited about Chipmunk, Tiny Temper, Tinchy Strider, Bashy, blah, blah, blah. And they'd go, nah. We'll put that on our specialist thing or our specialist playlist or we'll get Trevor to put it in the lick or something. And I'd be like, that's so weird. So it was a conversation I'd had often with them. I'm thinking, right, now I'm the boss. Could I make this change? And so what I did at the time was I remembered every person in the industry that was my friend. And we'd had this conversation about bringing black British musicians onto MTV. So people like my friend at Adidas or at Puma and Nike, people at the New Nation newspaper and the Voice newspaper, people at Kiss FM and Radio 1, they all just happened to be my friends that I raved with, but they were working in the industry as well. And we were all a kind of middle management, like trying to still work our way up. So I said to them, guys, I've got a new job. Can you all meet me for dinner? I just need to have a brainstorm as wanting to make British black musicians successful. And a lot of people got really annoyed at me because they were also my best friends that I hadn't invited to that dinner. But I hadn't invited them because they weren't believers in the British black musicians, right? This dinner ended up happening then once a month. 
And so once a month, I mean, it went from 25 people and you know what it's like. People fall off. They don't believe in it. They think it's not happening. I remember one very famous DJ saying to me at the time, Estelle is never going to be number one and I wish you'd stop pushing it. The minute she hit number one, I sent a company-wide email to this guy because he also worked at MTV at the time. And, and you know, yeah, I listen, it was really simple. All we did, and this is what I advise all women of colour in the industry to do, connect with people who are like-minded in your circles. So I had invited to help me think about how MTV Base could make it work for us. I invited all of my friends, but this is what their job titles were. As I said, there was a person running the playlist at BBC Radio 1. There was the person doing the stories at The Voice and The New Nation. There was the person at Kiss FM. There was the person who rang, ran Adidas celebrity endorsements, right? There was people like Ashley Walters, the actor, right? Everyone's still coming up. They're still making their mark. Now, when one person who's at the record label says to us, I'm working Estelle's new album, but I can't get it on Radio 1 because Radio 1 said the last album of hers they played, it didn't do well. So they're not going to play it this time. You go, oh, okay, cool. Let's think about that. And then around the dinner table, I have got a column in the Voice newspaper. I wrote in my column about how Radio 1 didn't champion black British musicians. So Radio 1's press team are freaking out now. And then they send a letter to my newspaper saying, actually... They are all championed and here they are. So they would be playlisted at four in the morning, 5 a.m. when no one's listening, right? So then I'm writing my column again going, well, you said this, but actually in the last month, here is when you played blah, blah, blah. So you champion the white act, but when it comes to the black acts, you give them a token, we're putting them on the playlist, but you didn't champion them in the same way. So between us around the table, we could literally every month say, who is already doing the work out there that we can help get to the next level? And we weren't playing God or Illuminati because we weren't picking who the stars would be. It would literally be who has already done the work. And so it's just about bringing together like-minded people in your industry and saying, how can we work together? So, you know, that's why I say if you're the smartest in the room, you're in the wrong room. I always say you are the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. And that is so true. Like if there's any mantra I live by, it's that one. Because if you are surrounded by people who are negative, you know, not positive, not ambitious, you will end up taking that on board and you will start thinking that way. If you're around other people who go, we can do it, let's do it like this. And if you if there are enough of you, like there are in my group. So my group started meeting in my MTV days. We are now like family. There's only 12 of us left. Uh, one of them died last year because of COVID. Uh, he was a rapper who was quite famous. But apart from that, you know, we're like family. So whoever we're in the industry, pulling each other up at different times, there are highs, there are lows. Sometimes you need advice. Everyone needs people to bounce off. And especially if you're a person of colour, like women of colour, it can feel isolating in the workplace. You don't know, like one minute your boss is going, oh, don't be too aggressive because you're really like, outspoken or the way you kind of rejected that idea might have been and you're like I wasn't outspoken I wasn't aggressive it's just the way I talk so it's funny how we dim ourselves or we change our personalities to be you know because I'm yeah. always paranoid because my white colleagues I know are thinking oh she's she's such a show off or she's always and I'm like you know what if I don't show off about my own stuff I won't get work because yeah. you guys aren't going to progress me you know how many times I've been told by PR people at TV companies oh 
that piece that you did or that show that you made or that interview did was so good. We should have entered it for an award, but we forgot. But you didn't forget everybody else. So Did you ever we... challenge that? No, I didn't. Of course I didn't. Because when they tell you, you, like an idiot, feel flattered. You go, oh, they thought my Stormzy interview was so good it should have got an award. It, my point is, you as women of colour, we have to push ourselves, shine, promote ourselves, surround ourselves with similar people who are ambitious, who add value to our lives, no negativity. And just remember, the priority in your work is to impact and add value. I mean, they're, they're kind of the mantras I live by. Don't be afraid to compete. Learn from your losses. We all have losses. We pitch for lots of things. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. And, you know, dealing with rejection is a huge thing. Whether you're a person of colour or not, <laughs> dealing with rejection and becoming resilient is something that you have to learn to do and not take things personally. I always tell people that I train that out of five pitches that you do, expect at least four of them to be no's. There's a little book called Who Moved My Cheese? Like I would advise if you can go onto Amazon and get it. It's literally like a little cartoon book. It's tiny. It's like a little paperback. But it's brilliant because Who Moved My Cheese premises, the minute you work your way up the career ladder and you become a boss and you sit there and you sit back with your arms folded and go, I'm the boss now. I know everything. That's the minute your cheese has gone somewhere else and you didn't chase it. And you look around and suddenly you're redundant and you haven't got a big paycheck. No one's knocking at your door anymore. And you go, who moved my cheese? Right? So so <laughs> you've got to keep chasing the cheese. You've got to keep finding new cheese. Because the, the other thing that I've been saying at companies when I do um, keynote speeches or, or anything, the one thing that I have absolutely learned from my 10 years at Media Trust is mentoring isn't just a junior staff member being mentored by a senior. Whatever level of your industry career you're in, whether you're at entry level, middle level or senior level, you should always aspire to have two mentors from the other two areas. So of course, when you're entry level, try and have a mid and a higher level mentor. If you're at mid-level, have an entry-level and a senior mentor. And if you're a senior-level, have two mentors from the other. Because they keep you current and relevant. Wherever you are, you are never too grown or leadership level to have a mentor. Young people mentor me as much as I mentor them. Thank you so much, guys, for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that very first episode of How Did You Get There podcast. If you did, please do like, share and subscribe. Thank you and see you next time.